Welcome to Fisher Link presented by Fisher Inc., a new podcast for the Fisher College of Business to highlight stories in and around Ohio State that you may not have heard about. My name is Paige Palmer, and I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. I'm joined by Brent Koffenbarger. Hey, everybody. My name is Brent Koffenbarger, and I'm a third-year Fisher College of Business student from Dublin, Ohio. Later on in this episode, we'll be talking with senior lecturer and director of honors cohort Tyler Shepfer. But for now, we're going to give you a little bit of background on how Fisher Link came to be. Well, this past summer when I was at work, I would be listening to podcasts every day, and I was thinking about how I wish that some of this stuff would be more relevant to my life at Ohio State. So I was thinking there has to be a podcast club at Ohio State, uh, something kind of in the realm of business. I was actually shocked to find out there wasn't anything. I looked into finding how I could possibly start that and got in contact with Fisher, Inc. Over that, we set up the podcast team and found some people along the way that were interested and have began highlighting stories in and around Fisher that others would be interested in. Each episode, we'll be talking with a guest from a variety of different backgrounds, inside and outside Fisher, to get their perspectives on a variety of business issues, to tell any stories they might have, and hear their advice for students or people in the corporate world today. So with us now, we have Tyler Shepherd. Ty is a senior lecturer of management and human resources at Ohio State, as well as the director of the Honors Cohort Program. Ty is also an alumnus of Ohio State and previously worked for the Shell Oil Company. Ty, thanks for coming on and talking to us today. Thanks for having me. So Ty, after uh, graduating from Ohio State, you went to work for Shell. What are some things you wish you would have known upon starting work at a major corporation that you didn't know initially? Great question. So when I joined Shell, I knew that it was a massive multinational organization. At the time, it operated in over 100 countries and had almost 100,000 employees. What I didn't realize is how the decision-making actually took place within the organization. So quickly, early on, once I joined, it, I was seeing how, how bureaucratic things were, and it took a lot of time to get decisions made. Without knowing who those decision-makers are, it's really hard to navigate the, the politics. So within the, the first six months or so, it was a lot of just get-to-know-yous and, and understanding what people's role, roles were. Because it wasn't always necessarily the, the organizational structure that dictated who was making the calls. So that was something that I, I definitely learned pretty early on in my career. If you had to go back again, would you start at a big company or do you think, or is it just kind of a trade-off or do you think that a big company or a little company, one is better than the other? I think there's a lot of benefit to doing both. Now, whether you do the large organization first or second, I'm not sure that that matters. But if you do join a, a smaller firm, even a mid-sized firm, you're going to have a lot more authority to, to kind of be autonomous in your role and push things forward that might not, get be, not, might not be pushed forward in a large organization like Shell. Specifically with Shell, it, it, it's been around for over 100 years. The way that they do things is pretty well set, and being able to change that is incredibly difficult. Whereas if you're a small startup, you're creating this stuff on your own from day one. That's really exciting. It's also probably a, a lot more work than, than maybe the work-life balance that you've got in a larger, a larger firm. All right, so you've been finished with your undergraduate degree for about 10 years now, and you have experience both in corporate America and in the academic world. So what's the most substantial change that you've seen in that time in the realm of human resources? Hmm. So the one thing that's really exciting right now within the, the area of human resources is this gig economy. 
So two companies that everyone has probably heard of is Uber and Airbnb. Thousands of quote-unquote employees that work for these organizations are contractors. And from an HR standpoint, the way that you manage contractors is very different than a full-time employee. You're not responsible for their benefits. The, the administration of the Fair Labor Standards Act is very, very different. And you're able to utilize these contractors in different ways to, to ultimately increase your revenue. So one example specifically to Uber right now that I think is exciting is if they're working, say, 40 hours per week, you're only paying them a percentage of what they earn for your organization. Your risk is very, very small. Whereas a large organization like Shell, you sign somebody on as a full-time employee, you might be paying them an average of 60 grand a year in that first year. You can go ahead and add on another 40% for their benefits. Do you think it's like a positive change or like a negative change? Like, do you think it's something we'll see continuing to happen or do you think it'll kind of like it's, fizzle it's, out? Yeah, so it's definitely going to continue to happen. Now, is it positive from an employee standpoint? I don't always think so. These, these organizations, though, are maximizing the revenue, which if they're a publicly traded company, shareholders are also making out. Employee standpoint, I think eventually we're going to see labor unions come back into play. They've been on the decline for the last couple decades. But if you're in a contractor relationship with an organization, it's hard to have your voice. And if they're able to unite as one voice in the form of a labor union, you might be able to see a little bit more power from the employee standpoint to increase wages, for instance. Changing gears a little bit, you've had a vast impact on the Honors Cohort program. Under your direction, the Honors Cohort has undergone a lot of significant changes. Are there any more changes that you see implementing in the future? And what exactly is your overall vision for the Honors Cohort or Fisher in general over the next like three to five years? Great, sure. So I like to think of the Honors Cohort program as Fisher's flagship undergraduate experience. And we aim to create an MBA for the undergraduate. So students take core classes as this group of, a th of 30. So instead of being in a large lecture hall with hundreds of students, you're with this small, tight-knit group over a long period of time. I think the, the way that we're moving and that we're continuing to, to move is action-based learning. Throwing the student into a situation and having them come up with some kind of result or conclusion, I think that's the only way to learn. Reading a textbook and reciting what you learned on a multiple choice test is, is going away. That is not the way of the future. If you're, if you're one that can cram the night before and ace the test the next day, there is nothing in that activity that's going to predict your future success other than that you're, you're willing to work a little bit hard. So I think with the Honors Cohort Program, we assess real-life skills that are going to immediately translate into the work, workplace as soon as you get started day one. Definitely sounds good. I think in some of my classes, one thing that like I have a gripe with and like just I've had this really since like high school is that like I just feel like it's some of the stuff just doesn't isn't going to help me in the future. And it just kind of like not in like the fact that it doesn't, but like the way it's I experience it, it I don't see it like directly correlating with like the future. And that's just something that's always kind of bothered me. So I think that's definitely an exciting part of 
Fisher in the future. The research alone says that when a student takes a multiple choice test and they get a 95% A on it, they've quote unquote mastered the material. You can give them that same exact assessment a week later and they'll score it a D. Two weeks later, they'll fail the exam. So the question that I have for everybody administering these multiple choice tests is what is the student actually learning that they're going to take into the future? That's, a, that's an alarming figure that I think more educators need to look at. So there's also a really large emphasis on service in the cohort, which is evident through the program's impact challenge. So for those who don't know, the cohort's impact challenge allows students to develop a community outreach program that positively contributes to society. So do you have any advice for students who want to make a social impact, but maybe don't know how, or any just general advice on how like students can harness their energy and use their skills to positively impact the world? Yeah, so I think the hardest thing for students and for people that, that have already graduated when it comes to service is taking that first step. That could be volunteering for an hour at a local soup kitchen. It could be just getting online and doing some research about some nonprofits that are out there that are looking for volunteers. A local organization that does totally amazing things that I think all college students should get involved with is Big Brothers and Big Sisters. In, in those situations, you're helping a, a challenged youth for two full years, you're building a one-on-one -on -one relationship and you truly are having a huge impact in somebody's life. Now, with students, everyone is very, very busy. They're, they're working hard on their studies. They're probably involved in extracurricular activities. They might even be working a part-time job. So it's like, where am I going to find the time? But the truth is, a lot of these service components you can do in your free time. It can be late at night. It can be early in the morning or sometime in the middle of the day. And you control that. So it's just a matter of marking that time out on your calendar and getting involved. So uh, kind of on a different note, changing gears a little bit. Uh, I'm a student in your 2292 class. And it's evident that you feel strongly about textbook prices for students. And it seemed like you spent a lot of time coming up with ways to save students money in that respect and reduce that cost. Why is this something that you feel strongly about or feel is worth devoting your time towards? So like many of the students out there, I not too long ago, I was a poor college student. And I'm originally from the Appalachian region of Ohio, which is a poverty-stricken area. I was really fortunate to get into Ohio State and get some scholarships. And I remember every semester having to decide which books I absolutely had to buy. Some of those books, even a decade ago, could be up to $200. And I know today they can go even higher than that. And the truth was, after you finish the course, that book either goes on the shelf and you never open it again, or you sell it back to the bookstore at a fraction of what you paid for it. That, that, to me, does not make any sense. A lot of the learning material that, it's at, that, that is out there at a very high-quality kind of package is already free. I mean, just watching a TED Talk on YouTube can be a very powerful way to learn, and that doesn't cost us anything. So what I did over the summer was partner with a group here at Ohio State, and I created a textbook that ultimately costs about $12. 
So we went from about $100 down to 12 future plans to get that to zero. And my thought is that extra $100 in the student's pocket can go towards food or towards another class or towards their tuition. We all know that loans continue to pile up. $100 for each class can make a massive difference when you compile that over four years. It's definitely a uh, quick way to become a pretty popular professor here, too. Yeah. I think that was right when I uh, got in your class and got the syllabus. That was something I was pretty happy about. It's just like almost it's like a weight off your shoulders immediately. It'd be nice if I could get 10% of that savings back to my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> so business education predominantly is confined to the classroom on a traditional scale, but it seems like it's evolving to incorporate more applied learning experiences. So do you kind of detect kind of a, a renaissance in business education? Things seem like they're changing a lot. So how do you see them changing? I think that there does need to be a, a renaissance, a massive changing towards action-based learning. We are starting to see more companies wanting to get involved in these large undergraduate programs because they're starting to see the value of bringing in that unique student perspective. So it might be a local company here in Columbus, Ohio, and L Brands or a Cardinal Health saying, here's a current challenge we have. We'd like to get a team of students to look into this, do some external research, some benchmarking, and propose a solution to us. Students could do this for, for free as part of one of their courses. We as a college and colleges around the country need to do more of that because those are the skill sets that you can throw on a resume. You can actually talk about in an interview, and that's what employers are looking for rather than saying, I read this textbook and I got an A in this course. Definitely. And kind of from a more corporate standpoint, since you do have that experience with Shell, what are some things that you think like they're really like looking for that maybe kids aren't coming out with from an undergraduate degree. Yes. It's the skills that employers are looking for. I don't think will surprise most people. It's grit. It's critical thinking skills. It's the ability to take initiative. So if your boss brings you an assignment and they say, here's a problem, go solve it. That takes a level of initiative and critical thinking that I don't think that we learn too much in college because you've got these clearly defined rubrics that say do X, Y, and Z, and students are really good at doing X, Y, and Z. But it's the, it's the skill of being able to connect the dots that maybe nobody else sees that adds the value to an organization. And that's why this project-based learning is so valuable at the undergraduate level. For sure. It's hard to learn those skills without actually going through it. <laughs> yeah. So one final question here. As a recent Ohio State graduate and a current Ohio State professor, what is one thing that you kind of want to scream from the rooftops at current students or you just think is imperative to get across to a current student? There's got to be something that you think that students just really aren't understanding or isn't getting pounded into their brains enough. I think students today need to be more curious. Go read the Wall Street Journal, The Economist. Go read something other than your Facebook news feed or your Instagram or your Snapchat because there's a large world out there, and if you're just reading sound bites, you're not going to have any level of understanding of what's actually happening. And you're going to continue to inform yourself based on these sound bites. 
and eventually make decisions based on all of that information, which is largely just factually not accurate. So what I'm really looking for in undergraduates today is to come in with an open mind, be critical of your instructors, challenge them on different things that they say, and be willing to back that up with other facts or maybe alternative facts that you've read about in other news outlets. Uh, students today don't do that. They don't do that, and it's so frustrating because they like to be spoon-fed information from one source, and they take it as the truth, and that's a scary thing because it's not always true. I think that's something, all of your advice, is something that a lot of students, including myself, can really learn from. So thank you so much for coming on this podcast. We really enjoyed having you here and getting to hear a little bit of your input. Thank you for having me, and best wishes with your podcast. A big thanks to all of you listening, and another thank you to our guest, Tyler Schupfer. To learn more about the podcast and stay updated on new episodes, you can go to fisherink.com, as well as subscribing to FisherLink on iTunes. Again, I'm Paige Palmer. And I'm Brent Koffenberger. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.